you are tuned in to the Beaver Tales podcast. Hello again, everybody. I'm Josh Worden. On this podcast, I talk with former Oregon State athletes about their playing days at OSU and things beyond sports, what's happened in their life since then, the life lessons they've learned, and so forth. Let's just jump in today. In fact, let's high jump in today with John Radetich, an Oregon State high jumper on the track and field program. He was there at Oregon State 1966 to 1971. He set the indoor world record in high jump in 1973. That was seven feet, four and three quarters inches. That is quite the height to achieve. Not only that, but he's got a story intertwined with Oregon State legend Dick Fosbury. In fact, he was only one year younger than Fosbury, arriving at Oregon State shortly after. And this was a time when, obviously, due to the Fosbury flop, a lot of things were changing in the track and field world, in high jump in particular. If you're not familiar with Fosbury's backstory, the short end of it is that he was a pretty mediocre high jumper in high school, if that, and then basically created a new method where he was jumping over the high bar backwards. If you ever watch high jump now, it's just the common method of jumping. But it was created by Dick Fosbury, who went on to have a successful career at Oregon State, would qualify at the Olympic trials for the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, and he'd win the gold medal in high jump. So Dick Fosbury was an Oregon State legend and a track and field legend for that right, and I'm actually hoping to get him on this podcast. We've talked really briefly and hoping to find a time at some point to get the legend himself, but as much as Dick Fosbury did for track and field, he won a gold medal, but he never set a world record in high jump. The first jumper to ever set a world record using his method, the Fosbury flop, was an Oregon State teammate, and that's John Radetich. Again, he went seven feet, four and three quarters inches at an indoor meet in Idaho a couple years after he finished at Oregon State, actually. So we talked about how he transitioned to the Fosbury flop. Obviously, he didn't grow up doing it. He's one year younger than Dick Fosbury, so he learned it kind of at Oregon State or really at the end of his OSU career more afterwards and improved with it. We talk about how he transitioned to that and what it was like to set the world record. Dick Fosbury had won the conference title in high jump three years in a row, 1967, 68, and 69. John Radetich kept the streak going in 1970, winning the school's fourth consecutive conference championship in the high jump. I've been reading and just finished the Wizard of Foz book. It's basically a biography on Dick Fosbury. It's really well written, uh, authored by Bob Welch. That helped me you know, learn about high jump, and John Radetich comes up a lot in that book. There's also a meet we talk about early on in this conversation at Stanford Stadium. John is originally from California, and this meet was in 1962 when John Radetich was a middle schooler, and he attended as a spectator with his dad and saw one of the more interesting uh, track and field meets of all time and one of the more impressive meets of all time for multiple reasons, and we'll explain why in this interview and his future OSU coach Bernie Wagner was an official at that meet though John probably had no idea at the time he'd one day become a premier high jumping athlete under the coaching of Bernie Wagner last thing I want to mention before we get to this conversation I want to give a shout out to a guy who helped me start this podcast he was an Oregon State student athlete himself just wrapped up his wrestling career at OSU. That's Christian Robertson. Spent a few years on the wrestling program at Oregon State and started his own podcast. It's called It's All About Who You Know. So he discusses a lot of different topics in athletics and faith and politics and uh, a lot more. He has a, a weekly podcast with his best friend and comedian Gus Boyd. He also gets some pretty popular and big guests on occasionally and it's a real good conversation. You actually hear my voice in the intro of each episode. 
uh, of Christian's podcast. Again, it's called It's All About Who You Know, and it's probably on whatever platform you're listening right now. On Apple, for example, is where I listen to it. Uh, it's right there. So it's It's All About Who You Know with Christian Robertson. Hope you enjoy this conversation now with John Raditich, who went on to work at the Albany Boys and Girls Club for 29 years and a legendary high jumper from Oregon State. Thanks for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast, John, from kind of near Fulhamath, how you spend in uh, retirement these days and how you doing today in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, just, you know, enjoying the morning, waiting, like I say, to get out and go work in my garden, probably do some chores as well. And I think there's a good chance we might go up to, my wife and I might go up to Mary's Peak today and look at the wildflowers. Ooh. It's there, they're, they're in right now. And yeah. It looks like a nice day, so. Okay. Are you much of a hiker personally? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Definitely. We like to hike, like to bike. Probably my favorite passion is skiing. I'm a, mm. I'm a backcountry telemark skier. And really? I haven't been skiing since, oh, I, I guess Thursday I went to Three Finger Jack and did some skiing there. Well, let's, we'll kind of come back to what you've done since Oregon State and, and your work that you did and then what retirement looks like. But let's kind of go kind of chronologically and we'll start with a track and field meet back in 1962. And you're not old enough to be a college athlete then. This was just as a, as a viewer in this one. Well, no, actually I was, a, I was an athlete at my that's middle school. That's true. I was, I was just learning how to high jump there and <laughs> I don't think I really had much in the way of lessons, but we had access, you know, to our, our marvelous high jump pit that, that we landed in sawdust. Yes. Yeah, it was great fun. You know, that was also a reason for the particular styles we had. Yeah. The throttle and the scissors, because you could kind of safely land in sawdust. And, you know, I, I really think that that's the advent of the foam pit really allowed for the flop style landing to work could be survivable right that's one yeah. of the main storylines that i read in finishing the uh, the wizard of Foz book was how conducive and perfectly timed the invention of the foam pit was for dick fosbury and everyone who came after him because mm-hmm. if it wasn't for that mm-hmm. it was already a bit of a dangerous move you're landing on your upper back and some people worried are you gonna break your neck and and if it wasn't for the foam pit Things may have turned out a lot differently. For how well, well, but the pole vaulters were were falling from a lot higher in landing than that True. too. But but yeah, as as the flop has progressed, you're landing more in a vertical position than you used to. Right. Like what the Fosbury did. So I think you went four foot eleven in that middle school meet around that same time. If right, <laughs> right, and then I saw that I saw well, I, it wasn't just the wasn't just the high jump, but the whole meet in general mm. was just. But still today, I say it's the best meet I ever saw. And I, I you know, saw part of the Olympics down in L.A. Wow. Um, but I'm just going, yeah. And then, of course, you know, being 14 years old, yeah. you've got some pretty big eyes to see all those guys out there doing that stuff. Guys and gals, you know. Right. So, yeah, that was to date. In fact, I'm even, I get goosebumps. Right now, I got them just thinking about that. <laughs> sitting there on a warm, you know, well, Saturday and Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, oh. The Stanford Stadium completely full. Yeah, yeah. About seventy by the second day, about eighty thousand people to to set the stage a little bit. This is nineteen sixty two, so we're in the Cold War. This is three months before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this meet is between some of the 
superstar athletes from the United States and Russia. And you're, you know, 13, 14 years old at right. the time. So when you were watching that meet, what kind of stood out both from the athletics itself and the stuff going on behind the scenes of, gosh, this is the U.S. and Russia at a very particular time for them to be competing? Well, I don't think I paid much at, at, at 14 years old. I didn't, yeah. I wasn't too much aware of the political ramifications sure. of, of what was going on there. Sure. Um, I was just, just enamored at, at just the, the sheer physicality of, of the athletes and the venue. I mean that you know you walk into that stadium on the way in. There's all these eucalyptus trees outside. You can smell that. It's California, so it's warm. <laughs> and just uh, yeah, it was just it was just fun to watch. And like I say, I just to this day I still I do think it's the best meet I've seen. Yeah. And I, a lot of my I, I you know since then I've I've talked to a lot of people who said oh I was there too you know I didn't real re realize it. Some of the guys on the track team like Steve Penzinger he'd been there. At right. the same, and just wow. At that point, basically everyone would have been doing the scissors or really the straddle for the most part. Because well, one one of the jumpers did a uh, the western roll. Okay. Everybody, there's only four. There's only four competitors in each event. Yeah. You know, so uh, one of them was uh, I think his name was Gene Johnson. He did the he did the western roll, so he actually could land in the pit and land on his feet and just walk out. <laughs> everybody else land on their back and had to shake the sawdust out of your shorts and your ears <laughs> one of the great things about jumping into sawdust yeah i was glad that i did it in california not up here in oregon i can't imagine what jumping into wet sawdust would be like <laughs> not fun uh so when you were growing up when did uh, you were already a bit of an athlete and you're jumping a little bit but when did track and field really take hold for you as man this is something that i'm going to do for a significant portion of my life well, I didn't, I didn't think that I didn't, I just, you know, I kind of go day by day. I loved whatever sport was in, in session, but at that time in middle school, I wasn't very big. And so I was playing on the B teams most of the time. And with the high jump, I could be on the A team, Yeah, you know, so that, I, I think I had success in that, but I still, you know, if it was basketball season, you know, I was hooping mm -hmm. and baseball. I don't yeah. know why I like baseball, but I did for a while. <laughs> Since then, I don't so much. It's kind of uh, at Oregon State when we used to uh, train, you know, the base in Coleman Field was right over there. And mm. we were busting our asses over there. And it seems to me they just, they were throwing the ball back and forth. <laughs> I had a coach, well, uh, there's a coach from, a high school coach from West Albany who's a track coach who says, yeah, those baseball players, they take 10 hum babes, they go in and take a shower. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so this guy like, <clears throat> so I don't, I, I'll watch part of the World Series, but that's about it as far as baseball. Sure. Yeah. So once you come to Oregon State and you meet Dick Fosbury, who is a few years ahead of you. One year. Uh, one, just one year, one year older than you. So you got a pretty good overlap with him. One of the funniest bits of reading the book was the reactions Dick would get on his at the time, what seemed like a funky, unusual style. And one, there's one photo in a newspaper where he's jumping over, but you can't see the foam pit. So it's kind of unclear which direction he's going. And some people were thinking he was going feet first over, like one writer thought, how is he going feet first over the bar? So point being, it, nobody really understood it. It was kind of an unconventional way to do it, obviously. He's basically creating this new method. So what was your first impression when you see Dick Bosbury doing his backwards, awkward jump. 
Well, it was it was weird uh, for sure, um, and I didn't you know I didn't think it's something I would embrace. Mm. Little did I know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was just it was it was just it was kind of his thing. I mean, every jumper's got their own style, but his was definitely the most unique. Well, almost yeah. I, I there was one guy in high school that almost did a flip over the bar. That was kind of cool. Well, uh, but yeah. So I just I was just taking care of myself, you know, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't do what other people do necessarily. I just try to do the best I could. Right. Not what I was trying to do with the help of my coach. So when he arrived, Bernie wasn't totally sold on the backwards, you know, the Fosbury flop. And he was basically trying to get him to ah, come back to the straddle. You're going to, you're going to limit yourself by doing your method. He ended up saying, okay, clearly this is the better one. And he, he gave him the green light eventually how long did it take for you to embrace it and learn both from Dick and Bernie Wagner himself before you were doing that same method? Well, um, actually it's kind of interesting that if Bernie had asked me to change, to do the flop, I don't know if I would have done it. You know, I, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have bought into it. Actually what happened to me is my senior year at the NCAAs for the only time in my life, I did not clear a height. I go height it. The only time I've ever done that. I tried to do some different things and it didn't work. So at that point in time, I just thought, I want to, I, I know I can jump better than this. So I, I switched over the flop and, and I went to a training camp that, that, that summer and uh, started flopping. And I had a best jump of seven one with a straddle my senior year. Um, and, and after a week of, of, you know, flopping, I was already jumping six ten. You know, so I hadn't really figured it out yet. Mm. So I'm kind of going, I like this. And yeah. also, there was a, a, a floppers camp and a straddlers camp. And I kept I kept hearing from the straddlers that coach they had there, he would run, well, back then it was film of uh, Valerie Bramel, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest high jumper of all time ever. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people, younger people don't even know about him. But anyhow, their coach... They ran a portion of, of uh, Brumel's jump technique. They ran his approach, and as soon as he left the ground, he turned it off. So at that point in time, I thought it was really stupid. Uh, now I realize that the approach and actual takeoff is the most important part of the jump because once you're in the air, you can't do anything. You can't do a lot about it. Your flight path is not going to change. Mm -hmm. You can kind of pull things away from the bar and stuff. But So I was kind of like, Oh, I'm glad I'm flopping and not straddling, having to watch this all the time. But little did I realize that you know that other coach was really smart. Right. But it was it was so it was so easy for me to change. It was just crazy. And the other thing is, I used to be a springboard diver, and the hurdle step when just before you land on two feet to launch into the air, the hurdle step is exactly the same motion hmm. as the the flop takeoff. Yeah. And so I I'd, I'd been doing that since I was eleven. You know, I knew, I knew how to do that. And so it really, it worked out well for me to, to do that. You know, I didn't understand the physics behind all that stuff then and everything, but there was just, how can you say it? It's amazing all of the things that had to come together for this to work out. Yeah. You know, number one, uh, if I hadn't been, if I had chosen, I, I, I could have gone to Brigham Young or Cal Berkeley mm -hmm. and I chose to come to Oregon State. If I hadn't come here, there's no way I would have learned to flop. No. I think of yeah, so it's just it's just it's just cool the way things work out, you know. And, and as far as that goes, you know, besides learning the flop here and stuff, 
I met my wife here too. Mm -hmm. We've been together 50 years now. Wow. That's probably even, that's probably the thing I really need to thank coach Wagner for. (laughs) Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on that on five decades. That's, that's impressive in its own right. Also fun. The springboard diving is fascinating to see how those fit into each other and, and one helping the other, the footwork and the just the verticality, feeling mm-hmm. comfortable. Mm-hmm. When I talked to Dick Oldfield about running and how he would, his coach would have runners sprint downhill just to get a feel for how fast you could get going or to hang on to the mm-hmm. car. He would drive a car around. Right. The track. Yeah. 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 I preferred to just have to have the wind at my back. If I <laughs> yeah. That's fast enough, but maybe it would help a little bit, you know, you're diving and you're getting a feel for what it feels like to really leap upwards to get height and to, to know how, what to do with it once you're in the air landing in water albeit so when you as you kind of brought up you were you didn't clear the height that one time then you go to the flop and it you're starting to pick up on it what was the timeline once you did kind of switch over up until you know you had some pretty high success in terms of uh, the conference meets and the the indoor championships so what ha- what was the timeline going forward once you did really embrace the flop well, I, I well, I, I was I started in June of my senior year, and then uh, by uh, that that next February, uh, I went to the, the uh, a track meet in the Houston Astrodome, where actually indoor meets are are kind of difficult because uh, usually you've got to run over a couple runways before you get to the actual area to to take off from, and mm-hmm. in the Astrodome it was all level, mm-hmm. and so I jumped. Uh, I jumped seven two there. That was my best mark, and that's that was nine months after I switched. Wow! Almost got the the American record. Just about had seven three and a half. <laughs> you know. But then right after that, uh, I had a ruptured appendix. You know, I almost died, and so I was. It took me a year. It all took me about two years to get back from that. And this is after your senior year at Oregon yeah. State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that next year. Uh, I continued to, like, it, it took me a little longer than four years to get out of school. <laughs> you know, it took another year to graduate, but I still trained there until 76. Gotcha. So, yeah, so I, it, was, it was really fast for me, but I, I think the fact that I was a, a, a diver and had kind of understood that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, look at the hurdle steps. It was all, it's, it's just crazy how, how yeah. simple it is. And then the reason it... I stopped diving, though, is it got scary. You really? Know, when you're doing multiple twists and stuff off of a high board, yeah it's not fun so <laughs> it was it, yeah it was it, it disappointed my diving coach i said yeah, i'm gonna high jump or the track and field the same time as diving yeah. so, so then if you kept on training and working and going to meets after you finished in college i forget what year it was where it was the indoor championships and you got the the indoor world record was that 70 was that 76 73 73 uh, that was that was the that was the first professional track and field meet Mm. Uh, it's called the International Track Association. That was the very first meet. It was in Pocatello, Idaho. I'd never jumped before 10,000 people before. <laughs> There's a little bit of an energy. That and the fact that it was the very first meet, and I was, wasn't sure if I was even going to be able to get on the, on the track tour. So I come out and pull a world record. You know? <laughs> but I never, you know, I never dreamed of doing something like that. Yeah. This wasn't, that wasn't my goal. I just, I guess maybe I'm, I'm just in it for the moment, but that was certainly a pleasant surprise. And then Fosbury was there. It was fun. I could hear him. He's going, wow. go right. <laughs> so that was cool. So he got to see the first world record for the flop. 
right that was the first because he he won a gold medal with it but nobody had ever set a world record using the flop until that day in 1973 as he right. watched his own mm -hmm. method being used mm -hmm. for a world record which is pretty yeah. pretty fantastic so what did you hear when you jump over the bar and i'm guessing you knew what the mark was for a world record even though you weren't thinking you would break that necessarily so well surprisingly the officials they said it was seven four when they set the bar up they set it at seven four and and one of the other jumpers there uh john dobroth who's an attorney he was over watching and measure and they were measuring from the top of the astroturf and that, that's the other thing we we're jumping on astroturf it wasn't even a really good surface to jump off of mm -hmm. so there's another three quarters of an inch between the top of the astroturf and the actual ground mm. so if he hadn't seen that you know we it would have been it would have been a measured seven four but when they remeasured it because of his advice it was uh, a centimeter higher than Bromel jumped wow so you wouldn't have gotten the world record if not no, for john no no you know but the bottom line truly is is i don't i don't think so much about it being a, as a world record as a personal best mm. And as an athlete, you know, that's all you can try and do is strive to do the best you can. And I was just lucky that, you know, it was higher than anybody else had done it before. But yeah. it's still a, mostly a personal best. It's interesting. I hear coaches say that a lot of, especially to the players who maybe aren't the best player on the team and the way they'll encourage those players are look you don't have to try to be the star player just be the best you can be which is it's a good statement it's a good coaching method because really all that that's all you can do is to be the best version of whatever athlete or or beyond athlete you can be but you were someone where you actually did set a world record so you could you could set out to be the best and yet you still have the desire to just you know view it as a personal best and what your personal height was mm -hmm. so why is that i mean why weren't you more not to say you weren't enamored or appreciative of a world record but it's surprising that you could get more boastful about mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. the world's best yeah uh, i don't know <laughs> yeah, realistically what was i doing i was jumping over a stick <laughs> you know so realistically you know in the real scope of things what does that mean yeah maybe if you know back in the caveman days i could have run and jumped into trees to get away from the lions or something but there really isn't a whole lot of uh value in jumping over a stick other than is we just as humans we just do things that you know yeah why skip rocks why jump over things it's just it's fun to do right and then right. and, 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 and luckily for me it actually turned into uh, my job for a couple of years right what a great job you know just uh train for a couple hours a day i could be home with my family the other time i you know i was able to spend a lot of time with my son and stuff mm. yeah, yeah it's just it's just it's i was a lucky dude yeah. i got i got hops i got somehow i got hops and <laughs> i was able to put it to good use but basically because i got to go to oregon state yeah it's funny how your view of sports i think is probably rational and fairly correct that it's you view it as fun and a, and a good outlet it's not an over glorification of you know at the end of the day you're just you know putting a ball in a basket or jumping over a stick or kicking a ball into a net whatever the sport is to a certain degree it is just that and yet you ended up working you know kind of in sports as an athletic director albeit broader than just sports you're working you worked for almost three decades at 
the Boys and Girls Club out in Albany. You coached a little bit, at least some volunteer coaching at OSU. So you stayed involved in athletics and in, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, I actually, I coached at Lynn Benton. Mm. Uh, I coached at Oregon State. I coached at Linfield, where my son competed. Mm. I coached him. And then I coached at Philomath High, South Albany High, helped at West Albany High. And, um, and, and now, well, not just now, but with the COVID thing, but I'm, I'm, I coach a master's, a female master's jumper, mm. uh, Allison Wood, who um, I, I know her from when she was competing with my son. Wow. And probably, it's probably been eight, 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 or eight, or eight years or so, I started, um, she asked me if I'd coach her. And of course, I said, no. and, and Bernie was her coach as well at wow. Western Oregon. So it's fun to take that over. And I still, well, I haven't coached her this year because there aren't any track meets. But mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, she says, John, you know, I don't want an old lady PR. I want a real <laughs> PR. She did that. Uh, she's, she's gotten like three personal bests and she's, she's 45 now. Wow. She actually went to the, the worlds uh, in, in, over in Europe this last uh, a year ago and won it and, and set a meet record. Wow. So I'm still coaching. I'm still coaching now. And yeah. then I'll go, you know, when, uh, when the Flormouth High track team gets back together and I'll go over there a couple of days to do a couple of guest appearances. Wow. So I still, I still like that. I still coach. That's awesome. Yeah. What made you passionate about being the athletic director at, at the Boys and Girls Club in Albany, what you got to accomplish there? Um, what, was, what was significant about that job to you? Well, the, the, the fact that they hired me, the first thing was good. Uh, and then I actually started out uh, working in another part of the building, but then I uh, got to be the athletic director. And I, I firmly believe that, uh, you know, sport reflects life. You know, you have the highs and lows that you have with life. Uh, you're, you're kind of rewarded if you work hard, but not totally because sometimes you can work too hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that sport is just a great venue for all of us, you know, not just kids. I mean, I'm still, I still enjoy, I still play some sand volleyball and stuff. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's a, it's a great classroom. So you can learn, you learn a lot of stuff, not just jumping over a stick. You know, you learn how to, you know, set goals for yourself and, and train properly and, and you meet a bunch of cool people doing yeah. that and stuff too. And so, yeah, in the course of the Boys and Girls Club, uh, we basically ran the, we had more people involved in our programs and the high school kids and the, and the high school programs and the middle school programs did. And, uh, I, you know, I like to think that once again, that thing is you, you can only be as good as you can be. You can't really worry about the other person. Uh, although that's easier for me to say as a high jumper because when they called my name, I was the only person that was high jumping. Mm. If you're in an 800 meter race and you got these guys with the sharp elbows that are trying to, you know, make their way. So perhaps my philosophy doesn't work as well in, in, in sports, in contact sports. I don't know. But I just think that we have so many things in life that are really serious. Uh, it's just fun to have things that you can do uh, and, and, be able to feel good about yourself and in the case of like track and field that's a great thing about yeah i had i probably had 300 kids you know in my track and field program every spring mm. um 
you can tell them, you know, it's the same thing in track and field. You can, you can, you have an empirical uh, method to measure what you've done. You know, you can see if you ran faster or you ran slower, jump higher or lower. And, and so it's easy, it's easy to be successful with that or, or have that, be able to define uh, success. Mm. Some of the other sports like gymnastics where it's all, it's, well, I guess, the, the judges figure out what's right or what's wrong, but I, I, it's a lot easier just to see the bar stays or the bar falls. Mm. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. No. So one of the, you, when you mentioned, you meet, you meet a lot of cool people doing sports and you, you mentioned that you met your wife there at OSU. Tell me how you met her and then how your family developed, you know, in the years since mm-hmm. then up until now. Mm-hmm. Well, actually it was uh, the start of my, my sophomore year. It was before the school started. There was there was a bunch of dances out at the out at the Memorial Union in the quad, and uh, I was outside in the the quad, you know, trying to do some dancing. And I spied this beautiful young lady, and I asked her to dance, and the rest is history. <laughs> it was it was cool, and so um, I think she might have been impressed. I had a I had this this. Uh, sports car my volkswagen bug <laughs> my high, high yeah and and then my letterman's jacket so i think i i think i i think i wooed her with all those uh, a done deal at that point <laughs> yeah there you go there you go uh and then i have a i have a son and a daughter and my my son uh scott uh, went to linfield and i helped coach him there and he had a best jump of seven two with the flop and that's higher than I jumped when I was in college. Yeah. I was straddling. And it's unfortunate that, you know, he there was not the venue to allow him to continue to compete after that. Because I'm sure he could have jumped, you know, it was higher, higher than me if he'd done that. But he had to go work. He didn't have that lucky ITA thing coming at the right time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was an All-American at, at Linfield. And then my daughter, Krista, um, she turned out to be a really good volleyball player. And she went to Western Oregon and she was an All-American there as well. And uh, with both my kids, I had fun um, when they were uh, high schoolers or slightly out of playing uh, volleyball with them on, on some teams and stuff. And, and like uh, we have for years, uh, the team I played on, we actually were the team in Corvallis, the co-ed team. And it was fun to have my son and my daughter on those teams as well. Yeah. And then my daughter in, in the, for, we played double sand over Chintimini. There used to be a really good group of people playing there. and We would whip up on the college boys. <laughs> it was fun. We'd play co-ed and, and they'd play a couple of guys. And uh, usually I got to serve and she was a, she was a setter, uh, a really good setter yeah. as well as a hitter stuff. So we just had a ball doing that. So it's been fun, you know, with work with my kids and stuff. And yeah. my wife, we played volleyball together too in the Corvallis City League and stuff. Mm-hmm. Sounds yeah. like you've stayed active. That's good. For sure. For yeah. sure. Well, kind of last question or two. Um, one of the, the ones I usually like to, to kind of close with is, is sort of touching on, you know, how you've changed as a person, both in sports and outside is kind of like how maybe you would give advice to yourself 
when you were, you know, a true freshman at Oregon State coming in uh, is all of the things that you've learned since then, of what you would share with yourself from back then, of the things that maybe you wish you knew, that sort of thing. What's, what's something that you've learned in life? I'm sure there's a, a lot of answers that you could give. So one or two of them of uh, something you learned since college that uh, you would, you wish you may have known back then. That's a good question. Uh, I think uh, probably the, the most important thing that you can do, and as soon as I used to tell my the kids in my programs and stuff, is you, you need to have a passion for something. It doesn't really matter what it is. You know, It could be, in my case, it was jumping over sticks, or now it's telemark skiing, but it might be, it, it's whatever's, whatever you, you know, wish to follow and make your passion. It, it might be you like to sew or you like to read books, or you wanna be a doctor or something. You just, whatever you wanna do, you wanna do it to the best of your abilities. And that's what I would tell the kids, you know, when your mom asks you to clean up your room, do it to the best of your ability. You know, challenge yourself to do the best you can in every project you have. Mm. And that's, that's all I really think you could do, you know, develop a passion and follow it. Mm. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, John. I hope you enjoyed time in your garden today and get a chance maybe to go to, to Mary's Peak and all the other beautiful spots around Oregon. It's fun to, mm -hmm. to reminisce about some amazing track and field meets and jumping at an absurd height that uh, is, it just boggles the mind to me. So thanks for reminiscing about yeah. all that. Well, thanks for calling. I've had fun talking about it too. Some pretty cool stories from John Raditich to break a world record. Not every day you get to talk to someone who's done that and some pretty cool memories of the track and field landscape at that time. And like I said, hopefully Dick Fosbury will join me on a future episode of this podcast as well. Thanks again for tuning into the Beaver Tales podcast. If you can share this with a friend, post about it, text someone about it, it would be much appreciated to, to spread the news about this podcast and get some more people listening to it. And same thing for Christian Robertson's podcast, a good buddy of mine and former Oregon State wrestler. I'll put a link to the uh, Apple webpage for his podcast so you can check out his episodes as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. My name is Josh Warden. Until next time, good night and go Beavs.